Hey guys, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers here at the Robertsdale Church of Christ. I just want to say thank you for checking out this message, and I'd like to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 if you're ever in the Robertsdale area. If you want to find out more information about the Robertsdale Church, head over to our website at robertsdalechurch.com. All right, let's get to the message. I'm praying that God will use this message to bless you and will help you grow closer to Jesus Christ. Well, I've got to make a confession to you this morning, and I know by the confession that I'm about to make that it's going to potentially affect the way that some of you view me, and and I'm okay with this, okay? So I'm I'm coming to you with a lot of transparency this morning. I know for some, your level of respect for me is going to go up, and for others, it's going to go down, but I'm just going to be real with you. Are you ready? I do not like Christmas music, period. Just do not like it. Now, I know some of you are like, what a guy. I really like him. Others of you are like, does he even love the Lord? I do. I just don't love Christmas music. There's one day a year I'm okay listening to it. And if my family is like really persistent, I'll go two days, Christmas Day and Christmas Eve if they're really persistent. And it's mainly only because Christmas music is just really bad. It's just not good music. And if you disagree with that, it's okay to be wrong, uh, but it's just not very good. However, there are two exceptions, okay? Two exceptions. And these I will listen to every day out of the year because they don't fall into that same category as just mediocre music. One of them is the song, Oh Holy Night by Josh Groban, classic. If you've not listened to that, What are you doing with your life? The second one is the song, Mary Did You Know, particularly by the Gaither Vocal Band, but there are others that have done that song that I really like. And I love the lyrics behind that song because it's asking a great question. When Mary is holding little baby Jesus, does she have any idea? What does she know in that moment of who that child was gonna grow up to be? Did she know that one day, this baby that she's holding would walk on water? Did she know that one day he would be hung on a cross? Did she know that he would be the great healer and great physician? Did she know that he would be her Lord? It's a great question. And we've been in this series that we started last week called He Shall Be Called. Appreciate Hurston reading that text to us. That's the text we're going to be in for the next couple of weeks where 700 years before Jesus is born, Isaiah writes about the coming Messiah and gives us a couple of names that he's going to be called. And they're powerful names, and all names are meaningful. In fact, in the Bible, virtually every name you read has some kind of meaning tied to it. The first humans you meet are named Adam and Eve. Adam meaning human. He's the representative of humanity. Eve meaning the mother of all that are living. And then you keep reading in the story, you meet a guy named Abraham. He's named the father of many nations, which is interesting because when you first meet him, he doesn't have any children. And then you get to this guy named Jesus, whose name means Yahweh saves. But he's not just known as Jesus. There's other places in the Bible where he's referred to as Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Well, the term I want us to look at this morning, as we're looking at each of these four names given to Jesus in Isaiah 9 and how he would fulfill them. Last week, we talked about how he's the wonderful counselor. Today, I want to look at that term that Hurston read to us, the second term that the Messiah would be known by, mighty 
God. It's an interesting name because of the phrase that it comes from in Hebrew. It comes from a phrase, El Gabor. It's a really fun word to say later. You need to figure out a way that you can work the word Gabor into a sentence. It's going to be a weird sentence, but it'll be fun to say. El meaning God. That's the name of God. El being short for Elohim. But Gabor is a word for valiant warrior. Now, there's other Gabors that we meet in the scriptures. In fact, the first one is a guy named Nimrod. Now, if you've been called a Nimrod, that was not a good thing at the time. But the name Nimrod's really interesting because in Genesis, you meet this guy. He's a powerful warrior. He's a mighty warrior and a powerful hunter before the Lord. He's called a Gabor. There's another guy in the Bible that we meet by the name of Joshua who Coincidentally, Joshua is the version of the name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, Yeshua. Joshua's name means, can you guess, Yahweh saves. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. And here is this guy named Joshua who's going to lead Israel into the land of Canaan. They're going to have to be fighters and they're going to have to remove all the inhabitants from the land. And Joshua is called a Gabor, a mighty warrior. There's another guy that we meet in the scripture. He's not a good guy at all. In fact, he's going to be matched up with this young man named David. David meets this giant named Goliath, and Goliath is referred to as a Gabor, a mighty warrior. So when we read this term, he would be called wonderful counselor, mighty God. It's a phrase that means the divine mighty warrior. And we certainly know our God is a divine mighty warrior. Warrior. But the question is, how is Jesus the mighty God? Because that's the question everybody was asking. Those that were alive at the time that Jesus was walking on the earth because of all the different things that he's doing, is he really God? Is he really the Messiah? And it's a question that we're still asking today, right? Is Jesus really who he says he is? Is Jesus actually God? Well, there's this book in the Bible in the New Testament. It's this account of the life of Jesus. There's four of them. We call them the gospel accounts. There's one that I am drawn to more than the others. They're all awesome. I love them all. But, you know, sometimes you have a book of the Bible that you like a little bit more than the others. And of the gospel accounts, the one that I enjoy the most is the gospel of Mark. There's a couple of reasons. One, I love the way Mark puts this narrative together about the life of Jesus, but also he just cuts to the chase. He's got a thesis at the very beginning, and then every story as you go through is showing us how Jesus is fulfilling the very first statement of Mark's gospel. Are you ready for it? Here's what Mark 1 verse 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's his thesis. Everything else you're going to read in Mark's gospel is helping us understand why this is true, why the story of Jesus is good news. But it's not just good news. It's the greatest news you've ever heard. And what is that news? It's that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God himself. And what he's going to show us in an account we're going to look at this morning is that when Jesus was walking on the earth, we were looking at God in the flesh, the mighty God, the El Gabor. There's this story in Mark chapter 2. And it was originally written, it wasn't really written to be read, it was written to be told and passed down because we're attracted to stories, aren't we? 
And when you get to Mark chapter 2, Jesus finds himself in Capernaum. It's this little fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's part of this little circle that Jesus made, this little circuit going around healing and teaching and telling people about the kingdom of God. And in Mark 2, he makes his way into Capernaum. It's Matthew's hometown. Do you remember Matthew, the tax collector that Jesus invited to be one of his disciples and apostles? And he's in Capernaum, and he's decided to go into this home, and he's going to teach the people. And when word spreads that Jesus is in town, people stop what they're doing, and they flock to where he is. And this house is packed. I mean, every seat is full. It's standing room only. There's people packed in every room. They're just out the door. They're around the entire house. They're peeking in through the windows. They just want a shot at seeing Jesus and just hearing what Jesus was going to say. Can you imagine being there on that day and just hearing Jesus himself teach It says over and over in the Bible that when people heard Jesus teach, they were amazed because he taught them with such clarity. There was no guessing. There was no interpreting. This is the word of God himself teaching the people what the word of God itself means. And they're drawn to it. They'll sit there for hours and hours and hours just to listen to him share what the word means. And there's no way to get in there. In the meantime, there's this guy who's in need of a miracle. See, he's paralyzed. Can't move his legs. He can't walk. He can't run. He can't provide for himself, much less a family. We're not told if he's born with paralysis or if there's some kind of accident that happened in his life. Was there a time in his life where he grew up just like any child running around? Maybe as a teenager, maybe as a young adult, he has some kind of accident. And all of a sudden now there's no more feeling, much less use of his legs. And as a result, he's destined to a life of struggle and suffering. He's a beggar. And in fact, the people that are around him think that he's done something wrong or his family has done something wrong. It's not just that he can't walk. It's that everybody that sees him in that culture is judging him because they all believe that the reason he's dealing with what he's dealing with is some kind of punishment from God. Either you or your parents or your grandparents did something sinful and this is God's punishment that he's doled out on you. That's what a lot of them thought at the time. Can you imagine why? walking around with that kind of burden, feeling that like you're being punished either for something you did or something your parents did that you might not even know about. And here he sits on the street corners every day, begging people for money just so he can survive to the next day, next day, and the next day, as he awaits that one day where he no longer has to beg because his life is over. But thankfully, he has four friends who see so much in him, who love him so much, that recognize that the only way that things will change is if they can get him to Jesus. They'd heard about the things that Jesus had done already up until this point. They heard Jesus was close. He's at somebody's house in Capernaum. Word has spread really fast. And so they run. They find their friend. He's sitting on his mat on the side of the road. And each of them grabs a corner. And they start carrying him to the house where Jesus is. And as they get to the house, they see the crowd is just gathered all around this home. And can you imagine the disappointment 
in this paralyzed man. But he's got four friends who don't know what it means to quit. Because just because they can't get in the door does not mean they're going to stop trying to get him in the very presence of Jesus. And so they do what any logically thinking person does. They destroyed somebody's home. They carried him up onto the roof and they began to dig a hole in the roof or pull back some of the roof to lower this man down in front of Jesus. Now let's just pause for a minute and let's just imagine a different vantage point in the story. You heard Jesus was coming. You heard he's at somebody's house and you ran there as quickly as you can and you got front row seats to hearing Jesus teach. This is more exciting and more popular and more thrilling than getting front row tickets to the Taylor Swift concert, right? You're now sitting at the very feet of Jesus himself and it's packed. There's people around you, but all they can do is press you closer to Jesus and that's fine too. And here you are sitting or standing at his feet as he's teaching. And all of a sudden something hits you in the head. You just kind of brush it off, not really worried about it. But then a little bit more hits you in the head. And so you look up to see what's hitting you on top of the head. And before you know it, there's sunlight appearing through a roof. And the last you checked, there were no sunroofs in this home until now. And this hole appears in the roof and there's four faces looking over. And the next thing you know, there's this object coming down. And it takes you a minute to realize what it is. Until there, you see this individual who's being lowered down on the mat. And you realize there's only one place he's going to go, right in front of Jesus. You either move or he's going to land right on top of you. And so you do your best and everybody moves and there's this chaotic commotion, even more so than our Christmas party and chaos Christmas last night, right? And you're moving out of the way. Sorry, you had to have been there. You're moving out of the way and there this man is dropped right in the very presence of Jesus himself. And you look at him and you recognize him. That's the beggar from the street corner. Just a week or so ago, you felt really bad for him. And so you gave him a little bit of money. And you went on about your business and didn't think about him ever again. But here he is, right at the very feet of Jesus. And everybody's wondering, what's going to happen? And then Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, can you imagine these four friends that are up on the roof? And they're waiting to see what's going to happen. And it's probably not a long distance, but there's probably so much commotion that there's one or two of them that don't hear exactly what's happening. And so they say, what did he say? What did he just say? Did he heal him yet? No, he didn't heal him. What did he say? I think he said, your sins are forgiven. I'm up on the roof, or maybe you, or maybe one of them, you know what they're thinking, or maybe even what they say. Sin's forgiven. He doesn't need his sins forgiven. He needs his legs healed. But there's something else that's going on in this crowd, because in the crowd, and maybe right outside the home, are religious people. They're called scribes. These individuals are tasked with studying and making copies of the word of God. They protect it. They guard it with their lives. They spend all of their time studying it, trying to learn it. They're sources of authority when it comes to what the word of God says. And they're thinking something. They're thinking, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's a great question. And as they're thinking this, Jesus pulls a cheat code. 
and he reads their minds. And in fact, in perceiving what's going on, he says, why are you asking these things in your hearts? <laughs> That's not fair, Lord. <laughs> They're just thinking them. They didn't vocalize it. They didn't grumble it. It's rolling in their mind and in their hearts. And he's going to ask him another question, a really good question. Think about it. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise up, take your bed and walk? Well, obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because if I pronounce on you the forgiveness of sins, who knows whether or not that is true? Only God. There's not some little meter on your body like your gas tank gauge where we can all see, oh, your sins have been forgiven. You're back to empty when it comes to the sin tank. Nobody knows. So here is Jesus as an authority, and he looks at this man and he says, your sins are forgiven. But nobody knows whether or not his sins have actually been forgiven. And they're all thinking in their minds, who is this who has the right to think he can forgive sins? But on the flip side of that, to have this man who is paralyzed, that everybody knows he's paralyzed. In fact, if it was an accident that happened earlier in his life, there might just be people in the crowd who saw him get hurt, where there's no faking it. Like, this is a man who is paralyzed. And in that culture, why in the world would you fake paralysis to set yourself up for a life of struggling and suffering? Everyone knows he can't walk. So which is easier? Oh, it's way easier to say your sins are forgiven than to tell someone who's paralyzed to get up and walk. But Jesus is going to teach them something on that day. Not really teach. He's going to demonstrate to them something that they had all been wondering. And so, the next thing he says is, so that you can know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, you got to think about this now. He's looking right at the scribes. His eyes are not on the man right in front of him at this point. He's looking at the religious people. And he's looking at everybody else in the crowd so that you can know exactly who his identity is, so that you can know he is the mighty God in the flesh, the great El Gabor. He looks at the man who's on the mat in front of him. And he said, rise up, take your bed, and go home. In this moment, things are happening in this man's body that had not happened for a very long time. His brain begins to send signals down through his spinal cord, which begins to send signals to the nerves back into his legs. Muscle tissues are regrowing instantaneously. And everyone's watching, and they're watching this man, and they're watching Jesus, and they're looking at the scribes, and they're trying to figure out what's about to happen. And then, to their surprise, for the first time ever or the first time in a long time, he wiggled his toes, just a little wiggle. And then he moved his feet and he feels the sensation that he hasn't felt in years go back through his legs and he feels the strength that he had lost years ago and he takes those legs and he pulls them up to his chest and maybe with some help, maybe not with any help at all, he stands up. Now, let's just pause for a minute. Let's think about this, okay? 
If you don't use muscles for an extended period of time, there's this thing that happens called atrophy, where your muscles that you don't use shrink, and basically they get to where they are not functional anymore. Now, if you had told this story and said that this man regained feeling in his legs and for the next year relearned how to walk, we would go, wow, what a modern miracle of modern science. But that's not what the story says. What the story says is a man who had been paralyzed either for years or for all of his life had his strength regained and he stood up and he walked home. He didn't have to relearn how to walk because when Jesus heals, he didn't just make him better. He didn't just help him regain the feeling. This miracle caused those muscles to grow back instantaneously to the very degree that now he could lift himself up, support his own body weight, remember in his mind what it requires to put one foot in front of the other. And to the surprise of everyone that is there that day, he picked up his mat and he walked out of the house and he went home. But I guarantee you it was not before he wrapped his arms around Jesus and through some ugly crying, thanked him for changing his life. But the greatest miracle that day, don't miss it, was not the fact that this paralyzed man was able to walk home. It's that he walked home a forgiven child in God's eyes because he had an encounter with the mighty God. There's a couple takeaways for us this morning that, that I really believe we need to remember today about who Jesus is as we think about surrendering our lives to him and worshiping him. The first one is that Jesus had power over the physical world. As you read through the gospels, as you read stories like this, it's just story after story showing us how powerful Jesus is because he is God in the flesh. In John chapter one, in Colossians chapter one, it talks about how Jesus created all things. What does all things leave out? No thing. He created everything, which is why he has the power to recreate everything. You see, if you create something, you have power over it and you can control it. Unless it's artificial intelligence, then you have no control and it'll probably take you out at some point anyways. But Jesus had power over the creation. That's why he could look at a man who couldn't walk and he could not only regain his feeling, but he could regrow the muscles in his body. It's why Jesus could look at a crowd of thousands, 5,000 men plus women and children, and he could take a kid's Happy Meal, a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish, and he could multiply it to feed this crowd of thousands and have enough for everybody to get insanely full and then have enough to send every one of his apostles home with a reminder and with dinner for the next day to remind them of the power of God. It's why Jesus in the middle of a storm could be asleep in the stern of the boat and then when the disciples think they're going to die and they finally wake him up, he just says, peace, be still. And instantly the storm is calm, the waters are completely calm. It's why in another storm, as his disciples think this is the end and they're bailing water out of the boat, that Jesus on the very surface of the waves could make his way out to the disciples walking on the top of the water. It's why he can bring peace to your chaotic life. It's why he can take your broken relationships and make them whole. It's why he can change the very course of your future. It's why he can bring healing to your infirmities. Because he is 
the mighty God. He has power over this world. He has power over the spiritual world. In the very beginning of Mark's gospel, he talks about how one of the very first things that Jesus does is a showdown with Satan himself. Forty days and forty nights, Jesus is fasting and he's being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And he overcomes the temptation through the word of God and then he makes his way back in to town and he heads into a synagogue and he's teaching and reading from the word of God and there in the worship gathering that day was a man possessed by a demon and the man steps stands up and interrupts the entire gathering and the demon speaks out and says we know who you are the holy one of God and Jesus shows command and power over the spiritual world and he silences the demon and he casts the demon out and everybody's amazed as Jesus shows power over the spiritual world and what you must understand is that when Jesus was sent to the cross and he hung there waiting to die, the powers of hell were throwing a party. They thought they had won. And I love what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, you know, if, if the forces of evil, if the rulers of this age knew what was actually happening they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What they did not realize was that hanging Jesus on the cross was the worst thing they could have done. The best thing for us, the worst for evil. Because only God can take something evil and conquer it and make it good. And it's because Jesus walked out of the tomb on the third day that sealed the defeat of the forces of hell itself. and ensured our victory over our sin. Speaking of, it shows us he has the power to forgive sin. That's what they were all asking, right? Who but God alone can forgive sin? And, and they were absolutely right. No one can forgive sin but God alone. I can't pronounce it to you. Nobody in this world can pronounce to you your sins have been forgiven. Only God alone. And when Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven, he had every right to do so because he's God in the flesh. It's just this reminder to us that we can get so fixated on other things that we think are our greatest problems, but they're not. Your greatest problems are not financial. Your greatest problems are not relational. Your greatest problems are not midterms this week. Your greatest problems are not the person that stabbed you in the back. Your greatest problem is, always has been, and will always be your sin. But thankfully, you have a Savior who has the power to forgive you of your sin. Ephesians 1 and verse 7 says, It was through his blood that we find the forgiveness of sin. In Acts chapter 10, it talks about how the entire story of the Bible, all of the prophets talked about how it's through Jesus that we can find the forgiveness of sin. There's a crowd in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, just weeks after Jesus had died, had been raised and ascended back into heaven. And Peter stands up and preaches and they recognize they had crucified the Lord himself. God in the flesh, they hung him on a cross. They shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And they recognized that they were sinners. And they said, what do we do? Peter said, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sin is your greatest problem, 
But Jesus is the answer to your sin. Finally, Jesus shows us that he has the power over our last great enemy. The one that unless he returns awaits us all, the power of death. One of the very last stories that is shared in Mark's gospel is one of the most powerful. It starts out really grim, like there's no hope. Jesus has been in the tomb for three days. Everybody had given up hope. It looked like evil had won. Darkness was reigning until light broke into that tomb. And Jesus was revived and conquered death and walked out being raised from the dead. And he appeared to his apostles, to the women that were present. He appeared, according to Paul, to over 500 people. And he ascended back into heaven. And as a result, gives us the greatest hope that we can have in this life, that regardless of what happens, the last great enemy has been defeated. That means death does not have the final word over you or I. Yes, there's a 100% guarantee unless Jesus returns that every one of us will experience death. However, death does not win. Not for the follower of Jesus. It's simply a passing from this life to the presence of the Lord. And we live every day with that hope. And it even, at times, causes us to stand at the casket of a loved one grieving with broken hearts, yet rejoicing in the hope that death does not have the final word. Our future is in the presence of the Lord, in that final resurrected state, in the presence of King Jesus forever and ever. Because he is the mighty God who has all power to overcome our sin, the forces of evil, and our last great enemy. I want to leave you with words from John's revelation, who's going to describe this mighty God in the flesh beautifully, powerfully, as the great divine warrior king that King Jesus is. He says, I saw heaven standing open, there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's faithful and true. He's victorious. That's my king. As that video that we saw at the very beginning of our gathering said, do you know him? Have you surrendered your life to King Jesus? He's the only one who can conquer the greatest problem in your life. 
He's the only one who can provide you with the hope of eternity. He's the only one worthy of surrendering your life because he is our wonderful counselor. He is our mighty God. And I hope that if you don't know him yet, today, you'll ask a question. Maybe you've been on this journey of faith and God has led you to this moment where you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You're ready to confess your belief in him. You're ready to repent of your sins and be baptized into Christ. There's nothing greater that you can do today than to make Jesus your king, to surrender your life to him. Today, if you need the prayers of this church family, if you need to recommit your life to him, you want to respond publicly or privately, please listen to the call of God, however he's calling you to respond. If we can encourage you in any way, please let us know as together we stand and sing.